so I'm Yogini. I'm from the Passive House Trust. Um, I basically head up the campaigns and communication side of things. Um, and I obviously know John Gilbert Architects quite well, but haven't met. Uh, I know Matt quite well, but I haven't met Chris or Ken yet. So, yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Ken and Chris, do you want to introduce yourselves as well? Okay, uh, my name is Ken Gibb. I'm a professor at the University of Glasgow and I am also the director of the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence. And uh, we led an evaluation which, in a sense, evolved, co evolved with the actual project on Midbury Road, uh, which obviously Chris was leading for the client on. So, yes, um, Chris Morgan, a director at John Gilbert. So, I, th I think. Um, the practice, we, we, in very broad terms, Matt tends to deal with the new build passive house more often than not, and I tend to deal with the retrofit side of things. So that's probably why. Um, although there's currently I'm running two or three new build passive house projects, so it doesn't really work quite out evenly. But um, yeah, certainly been involved in passive house a long time. I was at the um, I was one of two Scottish architects involved in the first passive house training course in Glasgow in 2010, I think it was. I think it was the first English language course. So Kirsty and Maguire were on that course. I think they'd all been German up to that point, and then it was the first English language one. So 2010, 2011, something like that, anyway. But yeah, I've been involved still in a long so time. Recent. Yeah. Isn't it? it still always just amazes me that it is actually really still quite recent, that that, that sort of thing. Because, I mean, for a minute there, Chris, we could have been like, I was part of the first pioneering course back in the day, 70 years ago. But you're looking well. <laughs> to be fair, it does feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um I'm Sarah. I'm one of the co-hosts, and I, um, I, I think I called myself at something recently a professional slasher because I basically like I'm in ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network. I do a little bit of, of coursework writing. I do a little bit of um, kind of everything at the minute. I don't really know where where to place myself, but I'm very happy to be here. Very happy that it's Friday, and very happy to be talking about Enerfit in this project because it's been high on our radar for quite a while. Um, so really looking forward to talking a little bit more about it. Um, Jeff and Alex, do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure, yeah. So I'm Jeff Colley. I'm, I'm the editor and publisher of Passive House Plus magazine, um, and uh, I've been involved in uh, various other kind of uh, activities, I suppose, including um, uh, I would in the past have chaired the Green Party's policy committee on buildings and worked on 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 sort of building regulations policy and stuff for them, um, and uh, been involved in the Passive House Association of Ireland. And generally, as much as our magazine's called what it is, um, we would try to be as nonpartisan. I know that sounds ridiculous to say with a magazine called Passive House Plus, um, uh, and you know we just we our whole shtick is supposed to be about. Um, advocating for evidence-based approaches to sustainable building and trying to scrutinize and you know and move towards kind of quantifying uh the impacts of of, of buildings beyond just energy performance you are increasingly getting into into uh into other stuff you know embodied carbon and indoor air quality and so on Hi, I'm Alex Blondin. Uh, I'm also one of the co-hosts um, and on the podcast, obviously. And uh, I'm one of the co-founders of a user experience agency called Everything is User Experience. Uh, so I'm one of the uh, the ones, well, I think the only one here who's not actually uh, sort of actively involved in uh, in retrofit or new build as such. Um, I don't know if that's true. What are you building in your garden? Okay, well, I've called, I used to call it a passive shed. Now I'm calling it my uh, training rig. 
So I'm, <laughs> I'm building my office from scratch, everything up to the windows and the doors myself. Um, and I'm trying to apply as much as I can uh, low energy building uh, principles. So I try to make it airtight using uh, everything I can to make sure the building is uh, as self-sufficient as possible and will be heated with the server I run in it rather than a conventional heating system. So maybe maybe I have a bit of experience, but it's still very much uh, DIY. But uh, it's the only way I can understand stuff. So it's a way for me to rationalize how everything I learn here. But that being said, on the UX side, uh, myself and my uh, uh, business partner, Dan, uh, we're specializing in um, in the low energy building sector. So our role, we hope, one day is to really push forward on the communication side and user experience, the uh, the message around the, the value and the, the importance of what we're all doing here. So that's sort of my role, I suppose, in, the, in all these conversations. We'd really love today to talk about the Nidri Road um, project. Um, we often will have overarching discussions about principles around things. So we're actually kind of excited to talk about, you know, the nuts and bolts of a real project. Um, but we can also just talk about the principles of, of Enerfit and how well it's worked there and, the, and the, the value of this as a demonstrator project and the lessons learned so that I guess what we all really want to see is more of this. So I wonder, um, Chris, are you able to give us sort of an overview of the project? Yes, I think so. Um, okay, well, let, let me try. Um, we uh, spoke to Southside early on, um, and the, uh, the first discussions were that there were going to be three options. There was going to be a standard retrofit, um, and one of the reasons they were interested in working with us is because the one of the people in the client team at the time had worked with us on a thing called HabLab, where we were testing buildings and monitoring them and finding out what was really happening. So they they knew us as, as Jeff would describe, evidence-based designers, or at least would like to think we are, we'll certainly try to be. Um, and so he got us that work and and on the on the strength of that he'd said well something more uh, deep retrofit um and then and then we suggested a third option which would be benefit um which we thought would would be a goer particularly because it turned out that the client had the whole tenement so and one of the sort of idiosyncrasies of passive houses is that they're not keen on just a single flat or anything like that it has to be the block so that's actually very unhelpful because in most cases <laughs> you don't own the whole block um, I think the British have different ownership patterns. So we said, well, this is actually a golden opportunity um, to, to do this, um, but it was more expensive and so on. And in the end, actually, the client decided not to do that and just to go for a standard retrofit. Having said that, there was a parallel process in which they were looking for funding and uh, they were involved with Ken and I'll probably let Ken tell that story. But essentially, there was this parallel process in which funding was sought for a sort of exemplar project across Scotland and, and we won. And on that basis, we had to have an exemplar project to talk about um, once we once we had the money to talk about it. So th it, it then got shifted up to Enerfit and that that necessitated conversations about funding with Glasgow City Council and so on. So um, as I say, Ken knows more about that than I do, but it then became an Enerfit, which it hadn't initially necessarily been. Um, and that was the decision-making process that we pushed quite hard for it to be more than just Enerfit. So we've put quite a lot of effort into it being about health and air quality as well, which is obviously linked to Passive House, but specific things about natural materials and, and avoiding certain chemicals and so on. And also we've put quite a lot of effort into it as a sort of a, a maintenance and heritage. So it's not just energy, it's the building, it's the, 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 the conservation of the building and the looking after the building. And that's pushed us to do certain things as well, um, quite apart from the benefit. And then, um, I mean, do you want me to talk about the sort of the, 
the actual sort of nuts and bolts of the project or because everybody's going to get bored listening to me asking Ken about the funding or something I, or I just had a quick question for you actually. Mm. so when you received the funding how far were you into the design process like yeah what age were you at and did it make a difference in terms of did you have to change a lot no I don't think we really started in earnest until we knew it was going to be benefit. I'm not 100% certain because it feels like a long time ago. But no, we we, we started design work essentially on an benefit from scratch. Um, but I think it was one of these things that's been in the ether for months and months and months and everybody's talking about it, but nothing's happening. Yeah, I think that's a really good question from the perspective of, um, you know, being being at the fore. I mean, as we've said, like it's it's quite um, it's still a relatively new approach, isn't it? And people are trying to upskill and learn around this all the time. And even I have experienced as practicing architect where we will have gone so far with a project and then climate, uh, the climate, there we go for it. Instead, the client needs have changed, climate needs too. Um, and we're suddenly trying to kind of unpick some of the stuff that we did before, which just sort of shows the importance of, of trying to get like, yeah, starting at the right point so that you're not undoing work, which is sort of comparable to what we talk about when we talk about doing retrofit and making sure that we have a whole house plan so that we don't like ourselves into um, un- unpicking bits that we really shouldn't have done in the first place. But um, Ken, did you want to just tell us a little bit around that, that yeah. funding story? Yeah, I mean, I'd also, before getting on to that, I would also say that the one kind of benefit of the COVID lockdown and all the dislocation of that was that it actually gave us several months to just think quite hard about what options were open to us as we tried to sort out the funding at the same time. And uh, that that meant there weren't so many things to unpick in reverse, I suppose, Chris, that that we therefore didn't have to. So it didn't feel a positive thing at the time. It felt it was very worrying, I think, waiting to see if we were ever going to get it off the ground. But uh, as it turned out, there weren't any of those reversing things that had to be done, I suppose, which is helpful. Uh, so the, the story with the funding is that uh, the Scottish Funding Council announced uh, on the back of the First Minister's kind of, uh, uh, you know, exhortation about a climate emergency that they would fund two climate emergency innovative uh, projects from Scottish higher education institutions. And Patrick from Southside actually phoned me up one afternoon and said, have you have you seen this and do you think this is something we could do? And he told me what his, what his aspirations were. And um, we had a think about it, and we, from a completely standing start, put a bid together in two weeks. I met Chris for the first time then, uh, and Patrick and Tim Sharp, the uh, architecture academic, now at Strathclyde. Uh, and we somehow assembled a team and put a bid together, and we won it. And so that meant that we had, uh, we basically had an, e- an evaluation research programme with the backing of the Scottish Funding Council, and I think that was that was premised that we would attempt to do an NFIT re- retrofit, and uh, that was that was in November 2019, and the project formally started at the end of February 2020. You know, sort of three weeks before lockdown happened. So uh, you know that that just brought everything to a grinding halt. But my my sense is that, and and other people have said this as well. So it's not just my talking the thing up. But my sense was that. It actually helped secure some of the the, the, the funding or, or or enhance the funding that we were able to access from Glasgow City Council and later from the Scottish Government towards the uh, renewables elements of it. 
So uh, it also meant that we had a big evaluation project to do, which was was also, as we discovered, a kind of action research project because the, the thing was very living as, as we were going along and, and was changing and we were debating finer points of the thing and dealing with external bodies as we went along. So there was that kind of action research stuff going on, which has been which was really interesting. Sorry, yeah. Well, that's very interesting, Ken. So was this, from your perspective, in the context of your work uh, with the UK Collaborative Centre for, for, for Housing Evidence? Um, and I'm just I'm just wondering, in, um, I know you mentioned Tim Sharp, for instance. Tim yeah. has done some uh, very important research, for instance, that I'm, I'm that I read some time ago on uh, the uh, indoor air quality levels, effectively, uh, in naturally ventilated airtight homes in Glasgow, um, and which included a very important, in my view, finding. Uh, or had the for- they had the foresight to inspect the conditions of the vents before they began monitoring, and they found sixty-three percent from memory of the vents in the homes closed or blocked. Right, um, which which consolidates is is, is in so. It's uh, uncannily similar results to a, uh, a Department of Communities and Local Government, I think, or I uh, can't remember what the acronym was at the time because they, they changed them so much, um, uh, report that Ian Maud had co-authored with ACOM uh, about, about 2010. So I'm just wondering um, uh, if if that was the case, and indeed with in your work, uh, how much, you know, are, are you doing much scrutinizing of uh, existing building stock and of of other uh, uh, attempts at low energy building that, that to, to you know to to inform your work. Um, I mean, I think myself personally, no. But my, I think uh, I mean Tim's Tim's role is essentially to lead on the the measuring of the building performance and and the kind of energy consumption aspects once residents are in the in, in the properties. Uh, so I I am I'm. Not, not my area at all. So I, I'm not involved in that. I've been involved in a cost-benefit analysis of, of the work which has now been published. And uh, I'm, I'm the overall co- co- coordinator of the, of the project. So Cash, Cash uses Cash as a UK Collaborative Centre. Uh, we, uh, some of our backroom team are supporting the project administration of it. And we have a number of colleagues at the University of Glasgow who are involved in one of the other elements of it, which is occupied the occupancy surveys we're going to do pre and post occupancy uh, get hopefully get tenants to uh, keep a diary as well after after they've had the the walk through and the and the, the training etc. But certainly uh, Chris will uh, back this up. Tim Tim's played a really important role in the project, continues to do so, and and but he's really about the building performance and also actually he's, he's involved in the occupancy survey work as well. So, Chris, can you tell us about the sort of um, the assessment process of the of the buildings and how you then set forth the the measures that were undertaken, and just a little bit about what actually was um, part of the package of 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 the measures of of, of the of the construction work itself. Yeah. Okay. Um, I keep there's a couple of things I wanted to say to Jeff, but I'll I'll do that. Oh well, no, you go no, with no, that. No, there. We, we can because, follow your lead. <laughs> just before I forget to say them, you know. Yeah, because, no. Um, go ahead. I, the, the point I was going to say to Jeff about Tim was that actually, uh, two of us who were working on the project worked with Tim um, for several years. So I worked at the School of Art where he worked for five years, actually. As and in fact, Tim was my boss. Um, but it's a relatively small cohort of people who are are very interested in building performance evaluation in Scotland, but because Scotland's quite a small country, it only takes a small number of people to make a difference. So 
Tim and 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 then we we set up Hab Lab on the back of our experience working at the School of Art, um, and it's 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 been a relatively successful group of people who who've made a quite a I think quite a culture shift in Scotland. A lot of people say immediately, oh well, it's not just about what the architect says; it's about what the actual evidence suggests. At the end of the day, you know, so quite a lot of people say that in government and um, or in in our other organisations. You know, we've. Um, so we've been able to make, and I think Tim is the, the, the main um, sort of proponent of that, make quite a big difference to the, the, the cultural or the policy level understanding of building performance evaluation in Scotland. I think because it's a smaller country, it's easier to make that impact. Um, so anyway, happy to talk about that more. In, in terms of the construction or the design, um, okay, so a, a lot of it's fairly standard. So there is you know, a large amount of insulation in the loft, as you might expect. Um, the difference really between that and a relatively standard um, project was that we stripped all of the eaves so that we could a make sure all of the timber was was in good nick, which it wasn't completely, although it was okay. Um, but but primarily so that we could make absolutely certain that we would have a good thermal bridge-free construction at those eaves. So you'll have talked about thermal bridges. I'm sure it's a conversation that can go on thermal bridging. But we 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 wanted to make sure that that was. Um, sort of absolutely 100% there. So we did that. The On the walls, um, on the back of the tenement and the side, there's a sort of gable, a half gable um, that was externally insulated. And that was relatively controversial. Um, although it's not a conservation area, we were told it would be treated as if it was a conservation area. And so it was, the, the planners were generally unhappy about that in principle, but they agreed to it in the end. So that was OK. But it's worth saying, because I think in Glasgow, there's a strong group of people who are passionate about tenements and Glasgow's heritage and, and don't want to see it lost under a pile of silicon and acrylic. Um, and so there is a genuine balancing act there. Um, and I've got some sympathy for it. It's just that as a practice, we look beyond heritage and go, there is a climate emergency. So it's better to have a planet with with heritage to worry about than to have no planet and you know um but anyway that's that that's a moot point for us so that that was the back walls and obviously the windows were replaced with triple glazing and there was lots of um, shenanigans about air tightness and windows and so on and so forth uh, we also we also enlarged the windows at the back of the building because the south facing part of the building is both overlooked and overgrown and has small windows so we we enlarged you know we took the lintels out and replaced and so on so forth. On the north side, which is the street side, we obviously wanted to maintain the stone frontage, so um, we internally insulated, um, but we did quite a bit of conservation work on that stone frontage, so it was all, all the pointing was taken out and replanted in line, stone indents, lithium X repairs, quite a lot of work, uh, because we know that when you insulate internally, you increase the risks of moisture in the wall, so we wanted to make sure that it was in as good a possible condition as it could be to optimize the likelihood of moisture being able to get out and so on and so forth. And we did a WIFI analysis. We got um, Olivia at Green Gage to do a WIFI analysis and that demonstrated that in fact, the stone wall would be sufficiently humid stroke moisture content that, that the timbers in the wall could, could decay. And, and lots of discussions about what we could decide to do about it. Um, their suggestion or certainly one of the suggestions was that we used a sort of storm dye product and i know toby's doing them um, toby green gauge is doing a sort of phd on storm dry i'm very wary of those sort of products um and so we took the view rather than trying to sort of paint our way out of the problem that we just took the, the joist out of the wall altogether 
So we developed a detail in which there is no timber in the front wall. So we had to mm-hmm. obviously bolt it back and so on and so forth, which was a pain because it was more money and so on. Mm-hmm. Very, um, very interesting, Chris. So just if I can interject for a second. Um, are, you, are you concerned um, that there's uh, less well-informed architects, for instance, or even projects where there's very limited architectural involvement, where they're chucking uh, you know, energy efficiency measures to buildings, including internal insulation, um, without any regard for these issues do you think yes. do you think there's yes. do you think there's a risk and, and uh, do you think do you think it's actually happening yes oh yes I mean, definitely yeah yeah um and it's um and, and it's a conversation that um we've been involved in for quite a few years i mean uh, we did a little project several years ago up on us up on the outer hebrides where we did a <laughs> it's quite funny we did it we split a cottage in two identically and and um a, a large insulation company insulated one half and uh, we did um, a natural uh, version on the other side, but with air tightness as the main goal, because the argument that we were using at the time was that in- in insulation is, 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 is grand, but if it's got gaps, then <laughs> it's not much use. So um, anyway, we, we lost, but we only lost slightly. We didn't actually put any insulation in the walls at all. We just lime plastered it and made it airtight. Um, so the ceiling insulation was identical, the floor insulation was identical, but we didn't insulate the walls at all. Um, and we got almost the same number. Um, because in, in, in the Hebrides, wind is an enormous part of it, and actually cold isn't, it's a relatively mild environment and so on. Um, and uh, so we, we, we sort of lost the argument slightly, but only just, and in a sense, we, we, we won the greater argument, I, my feeling. But the other thing was that the cost of our work was very small because uh, we didn't import vast tons of PIR insulation on boats and all the rest of it, which was quite an expensive business to do. So the actual, the, the, the cost of insulating that building on the other half was more than the value of the house, or it was certainly equivalent to it. Whereas I, I don't think that's a reasonable thing to do, uh, you know, to double the value or to, to, to insulate to the value of the house as it stands, because it's very unlikely that anybody will ever do that um, economically. So anyway, there were lots of stories, but the point is that's been an ongoing discussion up here, which is, increasing the risks of moisture in walls if you insulate internally um, and I, well it's going on everywhere and i know well um, yeah you know, i mean neil neil may that we all know and um miss was heavily involved in a, a project which you you'll probably all know about which was to do with minimizing what we put in internally um, and there have been discussions about that in the group i would imagine um so yes yeah, we were we were conscious of those uh, limitations, but because it was benefit, we had to push the band. We had to, we had to make it uh, thicker, the insulation. So the insulation on the inside of the wall is 120 mil. And we negotiated this with the certifiers who were warm to say that, I know you want us to put more in, but we, we're just making it very difficult for ourselves in terms of moisture risk in the long term. And they accepted that there needed to be a payoff. But as a result, the external wall insulation was Quite a bit thicker than it would ordinarily be, and more expensive. So, um, but that was that. You know, we had to sort of strike some sort of deal with that. Does that that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's great, and I have to say, it's great. Even you know, uh, we've seen this before with with Warm as a certifier too. That there've been projects where um, I'm aware of projects where they were uh, uh, essentially warning off, you know, uh, of potential issues from a, a building physics perspective in projects before they were certified. You know, and I think that 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 careful kind of considered approach. Uh, I guess when you know this stuff, you can't unsee it, right? So you kind of, you, you become aware of these risks and you and you kind of have to flag them. Um, uh, or, or otherwise, you run the risk of building failures occurring, you know? 
Well, one I... of the things I... Well, sorry, sorry. No, on. no, go ahead. Well, well, one of the things that I always enjoyed and appreciated, actually, was that, I mean, I, I was involved, as, as a number of you were, but at the beginning of a lot of the Passive House, Passive House Trust, Passive House involved, you know, John Williamson's lectures years ago at the, the get-togethers and all of these sort of things, you know. Um, and what was nice, my perspective on it, was that the, the, the cohort of people who were into Passive House and wanted to make it work were all also previously interested in natural materials, local sourcing, bioregionalism, all of these things. So they were not, as it were, it wasn't a group of energy geeks who sort of were spreadsheet happy. You know, it was it was practicing holistic architects and others who could see the point of this. So my take on the way Britain adopted Passive House was that it was a much more holistic and arguably more sensible approach. Um, and I know, for example, colleagues in other countries where it was driven by a or what I think of as a spreadsheet mentality, and 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 it has it has unforeseen consequences, that sort of thing. So that that leads into what I was going to ask. I was going to ask um, Yogini to come in here, just from your experience of um, you know representing the Pacifiers Trust and being aware of the projects that are looking for certification or 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 the projects that have been delivered. And um, what is your sense of whether or not the approach? to benefit and pacifies as Chris has described, which is the one that we would hope for, the low carbon sensitive approach, the one that is planned, the one that has looked after those risks and the ones that maybe aren't. Because when we were talking about, yes, our architects just going around and doing the thing that we're all terrified of, which is just slapping a load of external wall insulation everywhere and hoping that that'll do. You know, what's your um, sense of people's um, awareness in the industry about ensuring that those risks are, are managed so the good thing about Passive House, aiming for certification means you've got that independent quality assurance that you can actually check back with. So like Chris was saying, even if, you, if you're aware of those issues, you still have someone to actually say, oh, hey, there's an issue here that is potentially going to be a problem. And you've got that independent verification to help you justify those additional costs that you might have to do, like you might have to like, move something out of the way because you're going to end up with unintended unintended consequences later in the line. In terms of the whole industry, like I don't think we've really got our heads around the scale of the amount of retrofit that we actually have to do in terms of the whole industry. And that's not just to meet the climate um, targets that we're, we're thinking about, but that's just, you know, if you think that costs has come out quite a lot, even in just this short discussion, and if you think about the context now in terms of everyone's aware of the, of the cost of living, the energy crisis, like it all is just compounding. So I think the general awareness is going to drive that retrofit issue, I think. And, and the, the cost thing actually does scare me quite a lot <laughs> because if you look at it from... Um, the bigger picture and the and the climate emergency sort of thing you, we all know or most of us when you look at the, the long-term projections the exemplar benefit is probably what you, you must be kind of aiming for for not maybe not everything but for a vast majority of, of retrofits and um and even like now when you think about the cost of living people are, are looking at the short term they're not looking at the long term and so how do you make that balance in terms of getting people, like Chris has even mentioned at Nidri Road, they didn't look at NFX, it was too cost prohibitive. Um, and it was only because they got funding that they actually went down that route. So that, that is all just so interesting in terms of how do you make it attractive now 
and get the message across that this is actually what we have to do now to meet you know those long-term ambitions and I think Scotland in particular have been amazing at it and and like Chris has already mentioned like there's such a small pool of people that they have heavily influenced the government and that has infiltrated into policy which has actually helped secure these funding uh, mechanisms that are driving change at scale it's really positive it's really like inspiring to see compared to other places in not only in the UK but just how we are still lacking in terms of we haven't got X, Y, and Z in place yet. It was just such a simple thing that policy could help push. Um, so yeah, I don't think that really answered your question at all. Uh, it's really good. And actually, Ken, I think this is probably the point that you come in because whilst Yogini was talking, I was thinking about the importance of evaluation in building the case for making sure that this is the approach. Um, Ken, did you want to respond to Yogini? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say a little bit about that in a second, but I think the other thing to say is that you know, as a demonstration project, we were incredibly fortunate to have an empty close with, of eight, eight properties because the typical situation in Glasgow and in Edinburgh will be that the majority of the units are owned by owner-occupiers and by private landlords. So you have a kind of atomistic collection of people in a in a common shell. And, uh, you know, uh, so there's a whole background set of long-term legal reforms that are required in the way that tenements are, are organised. And, uh, you know, there has to be an acceptance that there needs to be incentive mechanisms in place that, that can actually make a difference for people. And, and it also raises questions about, you know, do you try to do block, block group, group repairs rather than work on an individual basis? And, of course, the other, the other thing that we were able to completely avoid was having nobody had to be decanted because nobody was in there in the first place. And, and we've had several discussions uh, thinking about uh, just how long and how big a decanting process is required for these sorts of things. Could it be phased or staged in different ways? Could you, could you compartmentalise the components of the retrofit over a period of time to try to m- minimise any individual household's dis- disturbance, disruption? Because that's going to be massively important to people with families with kids and all sorts of things, it's going to be really significant. And it's a, that must be a huge disincentive to people. So thinking about financial benefits uh, and not, not just subsidy, I'm thinking of things like equity shares and things like that to try and find ways to, to fund these things will be really, really important because it's not going to be done if it's just sticks. It's got to be carrots as well. I'm quite sure, sure of that. But yeah, I mean, I think I think the... So that's not, but that's not really for this project. But it's just, it's just one of the the, the realities that we have to recognise. The other side of that coin is that every social landlord in Glasgow and other cities has got access to some public funding to get to whatever standard that they they decide that social housing has to has to achieve. In our in our cost benefit analysis, the 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 comparator the the you know the the, the 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 other thing we tested was each two as a as a level and also a hypothetical demolition and new and new new build. So that those counterfactuals are critical to the kind of work that that, that was actually done. And and of course, uh, I guess the other sort of other big big lesson from the cost benefit analysis is that even though it tells a story and it suggests that the two retrofit measures are, are infinitely superior, not infinitely, not literally infinitely, they're much superior to uh, demolition and new build because of the, 
you know, the embodied carbon costs, etc., and, and and many other things. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it, it's it's the only the benefit is clearly the only thing that gets to net zero. So, or theoretically gets to net zero. So, there's a huge amount of uh, additional work that the each two level would have to get to beyond what it's getting to if that that was achieved. And I guess that's that's another way of saying that relying on EPC measures as your target isn't very sensible. Uh, essentially, I think I think I think we've talked about that many times, Chris. Uh, so uh, we had several po points of eval evaluation. Uh, as I say, some of it is still ongoing and just beginning. The the uh, the building performance doesn't really start till the tenants are in. To to, to be honest, everything so far is conceptual and theoretical, and the work is there now. And uh, it's really what the what what the tenants do 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 they use the ventilation way we we expect them to use it. Do, do they reduce their energy demand extensively? All, all that sort of stuff. That's the that's the key things, I think. Alex, I was I was quite interested actually from what you just said there. Is in a sense how how damaging are these tenants? You know, these human beings that come into the building and damage this perfection that you've created. Uh, what is the impact from you know you've got people who are used to living buildings. You know, no one well, nowadays we're used to realizing our buildings are super leaky and it's becoming a big conversation. But it's really recent. But what I understand from uh, such a, a retrofit or an benefit project certainly will be that uh, the behavior slightly changes. You can't do what you used to do. You you can't maybe necessarily open the windows all the time. You don't need to. You don't have to obviously whack up the heating. So what is the impact? So you've created this lovely building and then suddenly you push people into it and they have to use it. Well, I mean, I, I mean, Chris, Chris can talk more to this than me, but I suppose the principle of the thing is that we uh, we are offering them something and this is the economist to me talking but we're offering them this fantastic opportunity to uh, reduce their energy bills by 80 90 percent uh, if the building is used as planned uh, they they have a they have a couple of things that they have to get right in their head they will they will receive training uh, I don't think there's anything about the kind of people who've moved in I think any any resident in any circumstance needs to go through that process uh, there's a really strong financial mo mo motivation there uh, particularly now I think it's very visible and transparent so all of those things I think are really important but, but Chris you've been directly involved in these sorts of training issues yeah I've done a lot of it and I've written a few times that architects well architects and people like that need to sort of develop quite a range of skills for this because there's no doubt about it the um, how people operate in their building is arguably more important than any of the air tightness and the taping and the insulation stuff um, and you know there, there are hundreds of studies that show that identical pieces of work technically done to a house have enormously different um, you know uh, results in terms of the actual energy efficiency because of the way in which people have engaged and I, I've certainly really enjoyed it I mean I, I, I found it a really nice process to go through with people and explain just how nice it's going to be for them Exactly. They're going to get immediate benefits, aren't they? It's kind of like there's there's a tiny aspect of, yeah, you might have to learn a few new things on how to use your house, like the MBHR and and all of that stuff. But actually, the benefits far outweigh any of that. Like you're going to get instant financial benefit from low energy bills. Your interior is just going to be far nicer to be in. Like it's just... Give me a passive house anyway. <laughs> but I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I think that I think occupants, uh, people who live in homes, right? They're all going to be there for that. 
And the design is all good as well. It's the bit that both Chris and, and Ken are just suggesting, which is the skill set that the designers have to elaborate on, which is making sure that, and Alex, this is your game here, the user experience bit, you know, that's got to be straight up and down. That's got to be, you know, easy to, to understand. And it's got to be catered for more than anything because it's not being catered for in the way that it needs to be, you know, that you kind of hand over building and walk away. Yeah. And this is why the sort of evaluation process, this is why the kind of accountability that is about, you know, if you think about, say, for example, one one step further than even passive house or, or benefit would be like the the living building challenge i think which is actually more about well you'll get certification once the building has been lived in for a while and once we can see that like everybody gets it and once we can see that that's a user experience in action that's actually the occupants are in synergy with that building and that's the relationship bit and look just look at architectural training as was you know what was our most like what did all our presentations look like voidless buildings with no people around pesky clients like get them out of the way like that's that's I mean we laugh at it but that's a fundamental part of why this training is so alien really when actually that's a bit ridiculous isn't it I I, I would also just add that 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 applies to any building not just um exemplar exactly I don't I don't know if you've seen the video we we made uh we made this 15 minute video uh, last uh, autumn in time for COP26 and uh, I think undoubtedly the star turn in the the video is a a resident who's in Queen's Cross Housing Association talking about his Enerfit multi-story in in, in Woodside in Glasgow who is just fantastic who makes it very clear you know he's he's been around the block he knows he's been a social tenant for a while and uh, he was really clear about the savings he was making and about uh, using the ventilation and not having to So I only open the windows when I have to wash them, he said. That's, uh, that, that was the thing. So he really embraced the whole thing. And he was, I mean, he was, a, great, he was a great person to put out front on, in public. But it, it just kind of shows you that uh, there is no limit, in a sense, to, to who, who, who can benefit from these things and really, really make, make a go of it. And, that, and that's really... That's a really important lesson, I think. Very good point. I just wanted to raise um, in, in response to um, this point around uh, uh, that Chris made this very astute point around um, the behaviour of occupants being really important. I was Jeff frozen for everybody, frozen. or is that me? Yeah, <laughs> frozen for me as well. I'm afraid. <laughs> that <laughs> to an extent that 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 might. Talk oh, about. he's back. Am I back now at all? No. Yeah, I'm sorry. So this way you won't be able to see my my uh, my my gurning face. Um, so <laughs> apologies to 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 deny you that. No, I was just going to say one of the points that Chris raised before around the importance of um of occupants and their behaviour. I completely accept that, and I think it's very very important. But I would say that there are occasions, and I, th- I think this is really interesting to consider in the context of low energy building, where um, if you're really dogmatic. And go for it in terms of, of low energy building. I'm thinking of Knight's Place in, in Exeter, um, where uh, the the architect on that um, now Exeter is quite a warm part of the, of the UK, I suppose. So you, you've got a bit more slack cut in, the, in in that regard. But the architect uh, Thomas Gartner uh, uh, was of a view that they're passive houses; they don't need heating systems, and it was apartments, so they're kind of an easier case in some ways. So he just put in post heaters on the MVHR systems. And five years after the, the buildings were, this is sheltered housing, five years after the scheme was finished, in nine of the 18 units, 
the elderly residents reported that they hadn't turned the post heaters on in the first five years. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what we should be doing because um, that you know it, it seems to have worked in that case. You know, I, th- I think some of the tenants thought it was a bit colder than they might have liked, um, but generally the, p- the feedback was very positive. But it's just one way to solve the the uh, the, the occupancy behavior issue is just to basically don't give them the option. <laughs> it's a, probably a little bit too drastic, you know. Um, design, but, uh, well, what you're really talking about is designing out maybe potential problems, isn't it? And if it's possible to design those things out, then we should we should aim there. And I guess given you mentioned the location of that project, and I guess that's a consideration, the climatic, um, you know, implications of of whether you are wherever you are in the country, yeah, bigger. Um, and the, difference to design to there is a there is a question nestling in there too which is um you know how far do you want to go uh how, how much um how far do you want to push people you know given the given the different situations we're in yes we can give people benefits um but uh is it too brutal to do that do we you know um or uh or maybe a less you know, is a, is a is a more acceptable version of that just having a heating system that's not really capable of doing that much, but is enough, you know, in a, in a very well insulated air type building that it should be should be sufficient to meet the needs. Is that is that the answer? Well, for what it's worth, I think possibly not, because I think the thing is that for me, uh, there is an enormous gap between where most people are and where we need to be, and the way that we bridge that gap is by is by. <laughs> is by working with people from where they're at rather than telling them where they should be. Um, yeah. So my, my, my strong sense is that um, working with people and their various inadequacies um, is probably a richer journey than just telling them that they really ought to be somewhere else than where they are. No at. top down. So I want to be a green despot. Chris, no. <laughs> Jeff, you're foiled again. I don't know whether you're going to get this out there at all, and you're going to get any. Well, there are other issues. <laughs> I quite like it. <laughs> there Jeff's are other issues about comfort. I mean, there, are, there is quite a lot about comfort and thermal comfort and where the heat should be, and should the heat be in the air or should it be in surfaces and things like that. So, I mean, it was interesting going back to that that first pacifist course. That one of the advantages of being in the first cohort was that all of our tutors, or almost all of our tutors, were German and Austrian practitioners. And so we got a very, uh, a much more sort of human uh, take on passive housing. It wasn't just teachers who were teaching. It was people who built them and said, yeah, it says that, but it's not a very good idea and so on. And that, and that was really helpful because we got all of the human stories about, you know, I remember one chap being appalled that his wife had was drying clothing and the evaporative losses of the clothing had created coolth in his house. Anyway, but I'm, just, I'm just seeing that Ken needs to go, so I don't know whether I should let him have a last word. I was yeah. I was. Thank you for that. Sorry, I have to go. But I was just going to say that uh, in the cost benefit analysis, we tried to do some sensitivity work to try to capture things like the re- rebound effect. This notion of taking comfort when you get uh, a more a more energy efficient uh, environment, and and we've we've made us we made some assumption for that based on the literature, essentially that about what the level of that might 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 be. But that that's that's the the caveat that any anyone who does these things should say there's a whole lot of sensitivity that's been done a whole set of assumptions but we have used the treasury and bases uh, green book estimates for like carbon uh, costs and, and and they have a kind of low medium and high uh, uh, scenario about the extent to which uh, carbon reduction takes place because that affects the marginal value of a of a pound of carb, carbon or, or, or the, you know the, the, the real value of that carbon reduction. So uh, the, the good kind of news is that I guess these 
the retrofit options are always better than the the, the de demolition and new new build. But it it really depends on your assumptions uh, as to whether the other retrofits, which one comes out comes out best. But uh, I guess I see lots of assumptions and things like valuing a social tenancy and things like that are, have all got to be embodied in that. And and you've got to have real confidence in your costs and issues to do with optimism bias and things like that. So there's, all of that's at least in there and we're, at least we're transparent about it as, as it were. But yes, I should go. So thank thank you all for the opportunity to talk, talk to you Thanks today. Again. Fascinating Thanks. work. Okay. Yeah, it's nice to see, see you soon. <laughs> okay, cheers. I think that point that Ken made is a is a, a lovely place to kind of wrap up, but also it sort of opens up a whole other conversation that we could go down for another hour. But um, it is the you know I was reading the cost benefit benefit analysis, and it is it's a it's a good point. You know, there's a lot of considerations, but ultimately we're trying to yield good things and just develop our understanding about how to approach these things and where are the opportunities for. Um, standardizing approaches and where will there always be the sensitivities that that can um refer to and i suppose that's what's so useful about this nidri road project is that it's important that we have these demonstrators it's important that we see how well it can be done i mean i've had some people say oh but it's so expensive I'm like oh, it's a demonstrator project and we absolutely haven't got any choice but to explore how we go down this now i personally i don't think it is expensive for what you're getting because you're not comparing like for like and this is part of that wider conversation around um even if you were comparing like for like it's still a good value value deal but there's this whole bit around just encouraging positivity and how we talk about these projects and what you're actually doing it isn't it's more than just insulating a home it's it's much much more than that and that's what's really important about the messaging around it alex I suppose, I mean, in that, in that case, what, what have we learned from, or what can we learn from the Nidri Road project? What are the things, uh, uh, if it's a demonstrator project and it's supposed to sort of show the way, what are the things that uh, that you've seen that's, uh, uh, that we should be taking away from it, really, and that we should be applying or we should be learning from it? I have a horrible sense you're all looking at me. When it comes to the crunch, everyone's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, Chris, what are you going to do about you, that? Chris? What about you, <laughs> I, well, I, I would definitely say the funding is, is a big thing that you could take away from it because that's just demonstrated that you, you've actually been able to get that exemplar project off the ground due to the funding that was available. Otherwise, the demonstrator wouldn't even happen. So... Yeah, there's a there's a lot of things that just I in terms of costs again i keep banging on about it but um <laughs> it's far more cost effective to save energy than it is to generate energy so if you're it it's eye-wateringly expensive when you're thinking about the actual building in a silo by itself and you've got to upgrade it. But if you actually think about the bigger picture again looking at what's the cost of not retrofitting it like what's the cost of the infrastructure upgrades and the the heating systems and all together in that big picture, it then actually becomes really cost-effective to just, you know, retrofit. So it's how we frame the kind of the, the, the consideration from a cost perspective, rather than just thinking in the very crude, simplistic payback uh, yeah. terms that we normally do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the the big thing for me about cost is that it can be quite expensive to do the right thing now, but what is certainly more expensive is not doing the right thing for fifty years when we knew that we should be. I think that's the thing is that we're now suddenly facing 
facing where we should have, you know, I mean, you know, if we had started, you've all seen graphs that start, if we did all this in the 70s and started refurbishing buildings, blah, 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 you know, Club of Rome and, you know, the oil crisis and so on and so forth, you know, it, it simply wouldn't have been expensive. The cost is not that, and the same people who were saying, we really ought to do something about energy efficiency and so on, who were being ignored then, and now the same people saying, look, we really, really need to do something about energy efficiency. And rather than being ignored or being taken the mickey of, we're now being told it's too expensive. But it's the people who were saying that it wasn't going to be done 30 yeah. years ago who are now saying it's too expensive. So I've, I've stopped feeling bad about the cost. We do everything we can to keep costs down. Yeah. Um, and, and if you then look at different cost centres, so what are the benefits on health? What's the NHS? Um, you know, BRE have done quite some interesting work very initially on, you know, what's the cost of poor housing to the mm -hmm. NHS? It's billions. It's equivalent it to smoking and... Uh, no, not equivalent, but it's you know it's in a comparable band of cost to smoking and, and uh, what's it called Absolutely. being overweight and so on and so forth. So you know, yeah, and yeah, then the yeah. cost of maintenance and all of these sort of things. So it's it, how we approach cost is a very very messy business. You know, it is That's because we're not right. very good at quantifying the things that are less tangible or that we see as directly as not related. And the sooner that we get a handle on adding those things in, I mean, this is what what we keep saying on this podcast is well, we don't really have another choice we've got to do this we've got to get to grips with it we've got to change the messaging around it that's what we're doing that's what we'll continue to do and we need to stop talking about the co-benefits I absolutely that's my pet peeve of all of this there's isn't a co-benefit it's a benefit it's a primary front and center benefit you know all of those things about improved air quality about um about future price um volat volatility and protection from that about all of those things they're like primary benefits and the sooner that we start to con consider those in the mix then you know this cost bit the actual pounds at the bottom of the the, the bank balance does not I think not I think what's nice for us is actually the climate emergencies really helped us reframe how we think about things so we come from it if you ignore the climate emergency for a second think about people and put them center forward it actually is a no-brainer in terms of if you, if you don't think about, yeah, that bigger carbon picture, you're just thinking about, right, if, if you're the person, you, you're going to get lower energy bills, you're going to have a healthier environment, you're going to save the NHS like uh, a load of money, society will benefit in general. And that's all just from better buildings. Like, yeah, it just makes sense. I think that balance will shift this coming winter, I have to say. I think uh, you know. I mean, I've, I, I've I've written lectures about energy efficiency, and there's been a bullet point on one of the slides that says energy security, and nobody's remotely interested. But you know, I've said nobody's a thing. You know, if we have to get our energy from importing, then what happens if that becomes a problem? Yeah, nobody's interested. But now, of course, everybody's suddenly interested in that. And then also, you know, what the the other benefits, the health benefits, you know, the cost, the fuel poverty benefits. It's not that interesting. It's all about carbon, and then. I think this winter we'll suddenly see the health and the fuel poverty benefits becoming the main story, in fact, actually. I suppose there's also another advantage, which is with this sort of project, it's a great uh, it's great training material as well. I mean, we, we don't have enough of the expertise to actually deliver all these uh, these projects, Not well, maybe in, in Scotland, perhaps, because, as you said, it, it is a smaller country, but across the UK and Europe and further around, we don't have the people who can actually do all this. So I suppose that Need Your Road is a great example to be able to use uh, to show others how to do things or maybe even teach them, no? I think so. I, I think also this might be a good point to talk about, you know, the reach of what we have all come together here to do, both in the podcast, but also talking to our guests um, and beyond that. You know, I'm actually doing some work 
collaboratively with other organizations around this. So with BEST, with the AECB, you know, with ACAN, with all those things. So, so we're, we're also practicing the, the talking shop bit that maybe some people think the podcast might be, which is just, oh, you just come in and talk about it and, and, and put your opinions out there. But actually, the people that we've spoken to, we're all sort of also trying to collaborate and push forward and, and address some of those changes. And I, I think it's, you know, podcasts have been only around since COP. And what we're going to start doing is getting people back in that we had on earlier and also pick up on some of these projects to say, oh, yeah, no, this is this is actually happening. I mean, there's lots of people doing stuff like that. Just look here between, you know, Chris and Ken and and all of those things. And so it's really important, I think, for us to also acknowledge, yeah, people are trying to push this on and and, and it would be great to then show the evidence of some of that in, in the coming weeks and months as well, because um. Yeah, if you leave this podcast and think, oh, I just want to do more, then there are there are people out there to collaborate with and to talk to and actually reach out to us as well if if you want to talk about these things or if you wanna if you want us to talk to other people that need to get some airtime, then I think I'd make that call out as well. Cause it's important to show the evidence. Is that what we're talking about? The evaluation, the follow-up. <laughs> on on that point, I'd just like to add, um, Sarah, you mentioned earlier on the Living Buildings Challenge. It's really interesting. Um, I just wonder whether there's not scope for a another demonstration project for a for a different kind of living building challenge, effectively. Which is, suppose you uh, you uh, went for the highest amount of internal insulation you could using the least hygroscopic materials possible, using uh, the worst ventilation strategy possible, for instance, as well. Imagine how much living matter how much living uh organisms you could you could you could generate behind the insulation layer see how much life you can create within the structure of your building is that a competition to try and create the the, the most the most alive building possible basically what do you think you're for that <laughs> i think it's interesting i think there's like a you it sounds to me that you might want to go and do like yeah, some interesting art course about like a real living building. But it does put me in mind of that project, um, the Algae House, the big house where they have panels uh, as the fabric, uh, as the as the cladding of the building. Um, and they are like cultivating algae within that, that generate heat, that generate the heat for the building. But the growth of the algae also provides shading for the building. And like, so there's all sorts of stuff like happening out there that, would be just the kind of project that when you're in university, you'd be like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And your, you know, your tutors would have been like, yeah, right, come on. But actually, there's a lot to be learned in that sort of thing. And maybe that is like where it's going. Yeah. But <laughs> maybe no, that's you want it on your you want it on your joy stands. That's where you want it, you know. Just to bring it back to a Tory, Jeremy Hunt with his uh, pneumatic dance floor in his house that he had apparently. Um uh, you want you want <laughs> <laughs> you want him to have, uh, you know, uh, uh, nice, really high relative humidity in his joystand so that when he's got all of his Tory friends over for a party and they're jumping up and down. Uh, oh, it's just... been a while. It's been a while since you managed to mention the Tories and I'm going to have to bring out the Tory swear jar. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but listen, I think that it's been like such an interesting conversation and probably not covering what I thought we were going to talk about, but actually it's been really engaging on other levels that comes around to the same important points about we've got to push this agenda and we've got to ensure that we're bringing everybody along with us along the way. Um, and I, I think, yeah, the, the Nigeria project is is brilliant. And 
encourage as many people to take a look at this cost benefit analysis. We'll put all these things that people mentioned in the show notes so um, people can take a look at them as well. But yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Yogini, for joining us from the Passive House Trust perspective as well, and to Chris and to Ken. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone.